Hi, friends. Welcome to Season 5 of The Activity Continues, a paranormal podcast. I'm Amy, the producer and host of this show, along with Megan and the other Amy. We are three soul friends who love to talk about the Dead Files TV show, along with other spooky and spooky-adjacent things. We are just starting our third year, and it's going to be the best one yet. Hi, everyone. I'm Megan, our resident scaredy cat. (laughs) I love this stuff, but it absolutely terrifies me. (laughs) It doesn't terrify me. Me neither. Most of the time. Hey, everyone. I'm the other Amy, sometimes referred to as Amy, Amy P, or AP. And I'm the voice of reason in the chaos, trying to keep these two spooky, goofy, lovely ladies in line. (laughs) We're creating a community of like-minded friends who love to discuss all things paranormal. Along with our thoughts and tangents, you will also hear listener stories and interviews with paranormal professionals, Dead Files clients, and people with personal paranormal experiences. So far, we've spoken to a witch, an intuitive, a shaman, a UFO abductee, and a handful of Dead Files clients. We're always looking for more cool and interesting people to talk to. So if you're interested, please reach out to theactivitycontinues at gmail.com or fill out the guest intake form on our website, theactivitycontinues.com. We'd love to hear from you. Come join us where the The activity activity continues. Land. I'm Heather, and this is Amy. Hi! Join us as we take a trip back in time to the 1920s and 30s in Minneapolis and discover the city's underworld. If you've not already listened to the previous episode, or any of those before it, I recommend you check them out as this will make a lot more sense if you've heard those. And again, if you have listened before, you know that Volstead Land tells the story of some unsavory characters and the shit they get into. Some of the details might be unsettling to some. This is not for kids. Also, we swear. So please proceed with that in mind. Thank you. Okay, I wanted to start out by um, giving a shout out to some of our five-star reviews that we got. We have three I know that doesn't seem like a lot, but I'm pretty excited about them. I'm not going to read the whole review, but I'm just going to read the names of the people who did them so that um, give them a little recognition. So our first one was from Meggie1019, and she titled it, Very Well Researched, Five Stars. 
And then we got one from Haptowns um, that says, fun and interesting. And then our most recent one is from The Real Mrs. O, entertaining and formative. And these are really fun. So I urge you to go to um, Apple and or I, actually I'll put them on. I'll put them on our socials and website so you can read them. But I didn't want to take the time to read them here. But um, we're excited about that. And like I had posted, I don't understand the reasoning, but for some reason, reviews on Apple are more helpful than reviews other places, although other places are great too. But for some reason, the algorithms, some things I don't understand, that's really important for, for us to have them on Apple. So if you are so inclined, we would love it if you go to Apple Podcasts and uh, give us a review and hopefully a good one. Excellent. Yay. Okay, so, um, oh, the other thing we wanted to talk about is our Patreon page. There's the two levels if you want to support us financially, but I wanted to show you if you don't or can't, that's perfectly fine, this follow button, if you click that, you will still get all of the um, all of our updates. Every time we post anything, you'll get an update. Um, if you're not a patron, you won't be able to see all of them. But every time it posts something that you can see, it, you'll get an email or a notification if you have that on your phone. So that's that. So um, oh, all the links to the Patreon and Apple and all that, I'll put them all in the description in the show notes. When we last left Izzy, he was arrested in connection with a bank robbery, but was cleared. So sit back, grab a drink of choice, and join us. We're picking up in about 1933. Speaking of drinks, Heather, do you want to tell the Darbs what we're drinking this evening? Sure, Darb. Um, We are making the Ward 8 tonight. Um, Actually, Amy's husband, Greg, prepared it for us. The Ward 8 is a turn-of-the-century uh, concoction. It's one of Boston's major contributors. Con- it's one of Boston's major... Con- <laughs> it is... <laughs> How many of these have you had, Heather? <laughs> Not yet one. Um, the Ward 8 is a turn-of-the-20th-century concoction. It is one of Boston's major contributions to craft cocktails. Um, the cocktail was reportedly created in 1898 in Boston to celebrate the election of one Martin M. Lomazny to the state legislature. Lomazny was a politician who wielded considerable power in Boston for 40 years, serving as a state senator and representative, as well as a political boss in the city's 8th Ward. I'm from Boston. I've never heard of this cocktail, but I'm excited to try it today. It has uh, whiskey, fresh-squeezed lemon juice, fresh-squeezed orange juice, some grenadine, and um, apparently cherries that cost $16 a jar. And um, (laughs) it's quite delicious, actually. It's very citrus-forward. It is. It's very good. I'll put the recipe up on um, socials and on on Patreon so everybody can see it. As you listeners know, in previous episodes, Heather's been giving you some background on things like Prohibition and Minneapolis, and I've been doing all the research for the story um, of Isidore Blumenfeld, a.k.a. Kid Can, affectionately called Izzy by us. 
Um, but this time I was starting to do the research for the stories that I'd selected and I was getting a bit overwhelmed because it was too much. And the stories are really uh, complex. And so um, Heather was uh, very welcoming to, <laughs> that's not the right way to put it, open to <laughs> receptive uh, <laughs> to being um, being uh, given some some more more to do. And uh, so I delegated a little. So uh, how are you feeling about that? Heather? I feel great. Um, slightly overwhelmed when it was first tasked to me. Um, but yeah, it's fun. Um, and reading old newspapers is very interesting. I found myself reading things that had nothing to do with this case just because the headlines were so salacious. Oh, me too. And the ads. <laughs> yes, the, the ads. ads are yep. amazing. Mm-hmm. So I will um, start by talking about um, a kidnapping that involved our guy, Izzy. This kidnapping happened, kidnapping happened in 1933. And it wasn't just any old kidnapping. It was kind of historic in several ways. And I'll get to that. And Amy, I, I know we've talked in past episodes about how many tangents we can go down. Um, <laughs> and we have to draw the line somewhere. Um, but mm-hmm. with that said, um, we could spend hours talking about this very, very small blip in Kid Can's criminal history, but we won't. Um, maybe we can circle back in the future and explore some of the characters involved in this kidnapping. Unleash the power of stories anywhere, anytime with Audible. Immerse yourself in gripping stories, insightful knowledge, and captivating characters anytime, anywhere. Audible is your library on the go. With hundreds of thousands of titles across every genre, there's a world of reading waiting for your ears. Listen while you cook, clean, or commute. Free your eyes to conquer your day, all while feeding your mind. Start your 30-day free trial today and discover the joy of listening. Go to audibletrial.com slash TAC. That stands for The Activity Continues. With your free 30-day trial, you get one credit, two credits if you're a Prime member, good for any premium selection titles you like, yours to keep. You get the Audible Plus catalog of podcasts, audiobooks, guided wellness, and Audible originals. Listen all you want. No credits needed. Again, that is audibletrial.com slash TAC. If you're a regular listener, you know we love our three spirit drinks. They are the non-alcoholic spirit drinks that are taking the world by storm. Three Spirit is a range of three distinct drinks, each with its own unique flavor and effect. The Livener is a refreshing and invigorating drink that is perfect for starting your day or night. The Social Elixir is a smooth and sophisticated drink that's perfect for sharing with friends. And the nightcap is a calming and relaxing drink that's perfect for winding down before bed. All three drinks are made with plant-based ingredients and are free from alcohol, gluten, and sugar. They are also vegan and ethically sourced. So, whether you're looking for a delicious and refreshing drink to enjoy on its own, or a sophisticated non-alcoholic alternative to cocktails, 
Three Spirit is the perfect choice for you. Try Three Spirit today and discover the difference. Visit us.3spiritdrinks.com and use the promo code The Activity Continues for 15% off your entire order. Cheers! That one was the best one yet. I was tasked with researching Izzy's involvement here, but there are a lot more characters that we could explore. Um, Perhaps we could do a special um, episode for our Patreon subscribers. Um, Okay, so this kidnapping involves George Machine Gun Kelly. That's a name you may have heard. I know I am vaguely familiar with it, but um, didn't know much about him until I started reading all this stuff about the kidnapping. Um, And yes, I would love to explore him and his wife, who was his partner in crime, uh, more in the future. So on July 22nd, 1933, George Machine Gun Kelly... Um, and along with a cohort named Albert Bates, they entered the home of Charles Urschel in Oklahoma City. Urschel and his wife were entertaining another couple, and they were all sitting around a table playing bridge. Um, Urschel and his friend Walter Jarrett were abducted at gunpoint. Um, Up until this point, George Kelly's criminal career consisted of bootlegging and bank robbery, And his partner in crime, Albert Bates, um, had a long criminal career of burglary, burglary, burglary and bank robbery. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So they were abducted at gunpoint and Bernice Urschel, uh, Charles's wife, obviously called the police immediately after her husband and Jarrett were taken from their home. But that wasn't the only law enforcement agency she called. Um, she remembered a recent Time magazine article about the U.S. Bureau of Investigation. Uh, that's now what's called the FBI, which was tasked with combating kidnapping in the wake of the 1932 kidnapping of aviator Charles Lindbergh's baby. Um, so Bernice, Bernice saw this ad in Time magazine and knew right away um, that she also needed to call the hotline number that was listed in that article. Um, J. Edgar Hoover, who was the director of what is now the FBI, um, an agency that was struggling with a bad reputation at the time, um, he took a special interest in this case um, because of the media's recent attention to the Lindbergh kidnapping. He used this high profile case as self-promotion for both himself and the FBI. Smart. Mm -hmm. This case also was the first to be tried under the Federal Kidnapping Act, which is now known as the Lindbergh Law. Um, Congress passed this law in June 22, 1932, the day that would have been Charles Lindbergh's birthday. The Lindbergh Law made kidnapping across state lines a federal crime and stipulated that such an offense could be punished by death. So this... um, Urschel kidnapping was the first that was tried under that law. Okay, so back to the story. The two men were forced into the seat of Machine Gun Kelly's Chevy sedan and driven 12 miles from the city limits. It was specifically Urschel that they were after. He was a wealthy oil tycoon. Um, but they, they grabbed both people when they abducted them from the home, and they weren't sure at that time which of the men was Urschel. Um, but checking their wallets, they discovered which one it was, and they released Jarrett, the other guy. 
Urschel was taken to a farmhouse in Paradise, Texas, and held there for the next nine days. Uh, Urschel was blindfolded and kept chained to a high chair. And he actually ended up being very instrumental in helping the FBI um, find out where the, the hideout was after his release. Um, because even though he was blindfolded for most of the time, he was able to memorize a lot of details about his location, including the passing of an airplane overhead at the same time every day. A ransom letter was sent to John Catlett, a friend of Urschel. It instructed Urschel's family to place a specific classified ad in the daily Oklahoman newspaper. Bernice Urschel complied, which prompted a follow-up letter in which the kidnappers outlined their demands. A telegram was sent from Minneapolis on August 18, 1933. Immediately upon the receipt of this letter, you will proceed to obtain the sum of $200,000 in genuine used Federal Reserve currency in the denomination of $20 bills. It will be useless for you to attempt taking notes of serial numbers, making up a dummy package, or anything else in the line of attempted double cross. Bear this in mind. Charles F. Urschel will remain in our custody until money has been inspected and exchanged and furthermore will be at the scene of contact for payoff. And if there should be any attempt at any double cross, it will be he that suffers the consequence. Ew. <laughs> so the family paid the $200,000 and Urschel was released I guess, unchained and let out of his high chair on July 30th. <laughs> I'm, I'm picturing a grown man in a high chair. <laughs> That's a visual. <laughs> when the FBI raided the farmhouse, they arrested the owners, Robert and Aura Shannon, as well as Harvey Bailey, who was using the farm as a safe house after committing a robbery in Oklahoma. The FBI eventually captured Machine Gun Kelly and his wife, Catherine, in Memphis, Tennessee. The FBI claimed that upon his arrest, Kelly cried, don't shoot, G-men, presumably coining that phrase that is still used today to refer to that government agency. G-men? G-men means government men. And apparently, um, Machine Gun Kelly coined that term. Good for him. Although Kelly boasted that he would be out of prison by Christmas, he served time in Leavenworth, Texas, until October 1934. He was then transferred to Alcatraz, and he returned to Leavenworth in 1951, where he died in prison on July 18, 1954. Hmm. Okay, so what does Isidore Blumenfeld have to do with any of this, you ask? Yes. Over a dozen people were arrested on various charges in conjunction with this case, including seven members of the Minneapolis Liquor Syndicate, which was led by our boy Izzy. Right. These men included Charles Woke, Barney Berman, Peter Hackett, Cliff Skelly, Sam Kronick, all of those from Minneapolis, and Sam Cosberg of St. Paul. An indictment was brought. The Twin Cities men were charged with a conspiracy 
in company with other unknown persons to kidnap Urschel. Part of the conspiracy was a plan to take the $200,000 ransom money to other parts of the U.S., particularly St. Paul and Denver, and to pass it into circulation. In other words, money laundering. Right. So that was Kid Can's involvement with this particular case. That he received some of the money? Yep. He, he It was distributed to him and I think a couple other people. Yep. And then he could buy booze with it or whatever, but just to get it into circulation. Got it. Away from what was going on. Sure. But he claimed that he got the money from men in a liquor deal, and he would not recognize those men if he ever saw them again. <laughs> of course not. So, and of the seven defendants in the trial, only Blumenfeld was acquitted. Interesting. Yep. And he did that with the help of Minneapolis Police Chief Joseph Lehmeyer. Lehmeyer flew to Oklahoma City to testify for the Minneapolis defendants, and for some reason... He didn't notify anyone at the police station or in his department about his departure to cross state lines to do this. And this actually uh, cost him a demotion. He went from police chief to captain. So once again, Izzy gets off and everyone around him goes down. This is a pattern we're going to see again, for sure. Yeah. It um, pays to have friends in high places. Exactly. Yeah. Well, good job. Thanks. <laughs> and now you can relax. <laughs> okay. So we're back from break. Um. First of all, thank you, Heather, for doing that. I know that was stressful. No, it wasn't that <laughs> and, bad. And uh, uh, there's <laughs> a couple of things that I wanted to cover this time that I didn't get to. So we'll do that. Tomorrow's another day. At a later day. date. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So now I'm going to take you all back a little bit to 1927 when there was an attempted murder of a reporter named Howard Guilford. On September 26th, 1927, at about 8.30 a.m., Howard Guilford, a.k.a. Gill, was driving to work in downtown Minneapolis from his Robbinsdale home when a car pulled up next to his. The gunman opened their door, yelled at him to pull over, and started shooting. Gill tried to retrieve his own gun that was in his car's side pocket, while also trying to avoid the bullets that were coming through the car. He was struck in the abdomen, and the bullet lodged in his hip bone. Ooh. His sister-in-law, Miss Esther Zaidia, it's spelled S-I-E-D-E, so it'd be Howard's wife's sister, was in the car with him. She attempted to save him by shielding him with her own body, but he pushed her out of the car. <laughs> uh, she was able to run from the car and escape unharmed, though a bullet did fly right by her head. While she was in the car. Yeah. Uh, Later, Gil would say, life is sweet, but not so sweet that I would preserve it at the cost of a woman's life. (laughs) Guilford was able to take the license number of the gunman's car, but he didn't want to share it with the police. He said, I'll take the law in my own hands. 
but he gave the number of the car to an attendant at an oil station nearby. A taxi cab with passengers arrived at the scene and took Guilford and Esther to Barnabas Hospital. The license plate numbers did eventually make it to the police, but they were plates that were stolen off of another car. So why did this happen? Well, Howard Guilford, Gil, ran the Saturday Press with a man named J.M. Near. Between the two of them, they wrote all the articles. This paper was considered what they called back then a muckrake publication. A muckraker was any group of American writers identified with pre-World War I reform and expose writing. The muckrakers provided detailed, accurate journalistic accounts of the political and economic corruption and social hardships caused by the power of big business in a rapidly industrializing United States. Huh. Yeah, yeah. So as you can guess, these types of publications and their editors were not very popular with the officials in a city that was run the way Minneapolis was run at the time. Uh, The main issue here at hand was illegal gambling. It was rampant, and it was run by the underworld characters, such as our pal Izzy. And the police and city officials allowed it to happen in return for payment. I believe it was a percentage of what they took in uh, from the men who, the people who played the games and probably lost a lot of money. The people who ran it paid a percentage of their earnings to the police to have them look the other way. Uh, This particular paper's main goal was, in their words, to cleanse Minneapolis of the Twin City Reporter, which is another similar publication, and its protected gambling syndicate owners. As you know, there are a lot of people who would lose a lot of money if the gambling syndicates were shut down, so the solution would be to get rid of them or to shut them up. And just a little background here on the Twin City Reporter It was another local muckrake paper, originally owned by the same two men, Guilford and Near. They sold it and moved on about eight years before this. The men who took over the Twin City Reporter conduct themselves a little differently than the original owners. Uh, One way is that they frequently blackmailed people that they had dirt about in order to keep their names out of the paper. Also, they actually owned gambling companies. So this paper, the Saturday Press, really wanted to shut them down, the paper and the gambling. And I actually have a lot more information about that paper and the way that it changed hands, but I'm really trying to rein myself in. (laughs) Uh, And it's hard. It is hard. (laughs) I I want to tell you everything because it's so interesting. But um, And I also uncovered some more stuff about one of the men that ran it after Guilford. His name's Jack Bevins. And it's some pretty shocking stuff. So I really want to circle back to that at some point, Uh, which reminds me, um, we talked about making a list of all the things and I started writing them down, but there are 12 things on it already. (laughs) And only one of them is the one you gave me, the Machine Gun Kelly. So uh, yeah, there's a whole bunch of stuff. Uh, So maybe when we're done talking about Kid Can, we can deep dive into some of these other things. So Gil and Jay Near both say that they were warned before this. This is a quote from Gil. I have been warned several times that I would be shot, Gil said in the Brainerd Daily Dispatch, and declared as he was headed to surgery that he and his paper would, quote, put the Minneapolis gunman booze gambling ring out of existence. 
Two weeks ago, when I refused to accept a weekly pay envelope from the gambling and booze interests, I was told that if my paper ever reached the streets of Minneapolis, I would be killed. (gasps) The issue was released just days before the shooting. I have a quote that I got. It's from Gil that was put in the paper before his shooting. So the paper came out just a few days before, so sometime in between when he was threatened and when the paper hit the streets. Make no mistake about this. We are going on through. And if anything happens to us, accidental or otherwise, the stage is set so that within 24 hours after the accident happens, old Sir John Law will begin stuffing Stillwater Penitentiary full of certain gentlemen. And before he finishes, that model institution will be so overcrowded that the last few dozen will have to sleep with their legs out the windows. (laughs) Now, if you think I'm kidding, just ring your machine gun curlew and watch the Hegira begin. Hegira? Hegira. H-E-G-I-R-A. Another word of the day. Um, I looked it up and it says uh, it's an exodus or a migration. Okay. Uh-huh. Now we know. Now we know. And I don't know what Sir John Law is. When he says old Sir John Law will be stuffing the Stillwater Penitentiary. I, I don't know what that is. I Googled Sir John Law. It's not a person. Maybe. It's not a, it's oh, a I was phrase, it I was, guess. Oh, okay. I was like thinking it's just it was a, the head of the prison or something, but no. Oh, maybe. Uh, yeah, I couldn't find anything. I just assumed it was like like a phrase that you use for like the man, <laughs> you know, the <laughs> whatever. But anyway. As it turns out, this attack took place about 100 feet outside the city limits, so Minneapolis chose not to investigate. However, the sheriff, Earl Brown, and our buddy, Floyd B. Olson, who was county attorney at the time, were rounding up suspects and quizzing them. Uh, They ended up arresting three men, Paul, Irish, Gottlieb, and brothers Harry and Sam Jaffa. Gill, while recovering, was able to identify them as the assailants. But they didn't just show him photos. They marched these guys down to St. Barnabas Hospital, brought them into Gill's room, where he pointed on them from his hospital bed and named them. Uh, two. He named two of them. Uh, they are Paul and Harry, the older of the two brothers. The younger brother was still arrested, but they, I don't know. They didn't bring him to the hospital, and I don't know why. But he ended up not being charged. A few other guys were also arrested, but it was assumed they would be released after being questioned. Only Paul Gottlieb and one brother, Harry, uh, were indicted on charges of first-degree assault. Both men had alibis and claimed they were nowhere near the shooting. The newspaper said that, quote, Although authorities declared the Jaffa brothers were hired to shoot Guilford, there was no indication who might have ordered them killed. After Guilford was shot, his partner, J.M. Neer, who called himself the old man in the paper, wrote several articles in the following issue of the Saturday Press. He actually called out the people who hired the kids who shot Gil, saying, And you, nameless, sireless spawn, who plotted that shooting, but who didn't have the guts to turn the trick yourselves. I wish there were words in the English language that would enable me to express my contempt for you, you carrion buzzards. You hired your gunmen and then scuttled for cover, preparing your alibi, arranging your schedule, protecting your own leprous hides, rearranging your smirks, and planning your future earning, when, with Gil out of the way, you would feel safe once more. You thought... 
You hoped that with the shooting of Gill, the old man would fade out of the picture. But you sicked your dogs on the wrong cat. The fight has just begun. Signed, The Old Man, J.M. Near. There was an article written by Jay Near, this same guy, in the Saturday Press that says he believes that the only reason that the sister-in-law Esther was not killed is that the assassins figured out that she was not Mrs. Guilford. He believes that the hit was for both of them. Oh, mm-hmm. okay. But if they killed the sister-in-law instead, they might not be able to collect their fees. So once they realized it wasn't her, they let, didn't kill her. Quit shooting at her. <laughs> for perspective for uh, us Minneapolitans, uh, the gambling dens was one of the gambling dens was at 818 Hennepin Avenue, which is now the Brave New Workshop. Oh, one thing I found pretty interesting uh, while Gil was in the hospital, a uh, what they called a skulker <laughs> came into the hospital. Another word of the day. <laughs> <laughs> looking for Gil. Look at, you know, go, going in to find out how he was. Um, it says. Uh, I'll just read this. this is from the newspaper. The skulker, who is said to answer the description of an enemy of Guilford's, entered the hospital by way of the receiving ward and was accosted by a nurse in the hall not far from the room where Guilford was fighting for life. The nurse informed the doctor, Guilford's physician, that the man asked how Guilford was getting along when she stopped him. When the nurse informed the man that Guilford appeared to be slightly better, he appeared to be angry. Oh, he is, <laughs> is he? The man growled and walked away. The nurse made suspicious by his attitude and his manner and the fact that his cap was pulled down to shade his face made an immediate report to the police authorities. A search of the hospital showed that the man was no longer on the premises. Guilford was not informed of the visit from the stranger who resented the slightest improvement in his condition. His condition is too critical to permit him to be subjected to that shock. The doctor described his condition today as fair. And then I did see another article that said that this guy walked into Gil's room, but a nurse scared him away before he could do anything. Huh. So I don't know which one of those is true. Maybe none of it is. You know. yeah. Like I said, 99% bullshit. <laughs> Howard Guilford did survive this attack and went on to publish the Saturday Press. He even named the gangster who threatened him. He didn't name him when he first mentioned it because he was, you know... I guess trying to be careful, or I don't think he was trying to be nice. Uh, but now he's now that he really did get shot, uh, he named him, and his name is Mose Barnett. So he's on the list. People we need to look into. It seems like he's a pretty big deal, but I didn't dig into him too much. Um, the trial was delayed in January 1928, first because one of the defendants, Jaffa, was sick. Then because Gill was too weak and on the nerve, uh, the nerve and on the verge of a nervous breakdown to testify. And also their attorney was ill. The attorney was Ernest S. Carey. I'm not sure if he's any relation to Archie Carey, the guy that we've heard from before, but he's now on the list. Archie Carey, because <laughs> he's <laughs> been covering for these guys for quite a while. On February 27th, Jaffa and Gottlieb are cleared of all charges when Gil changed his answer about who shot him. After he returned from a trip to Chicago, he said that a fairly famous Chicago mobster named Jack Gold is the one who shot him. He said Gold is a dead ringer for Jaffa, and that's why he confused them. 
the newspaper actually ran a photo of the two of the guys together. So I'll put that up in the socials and, and uh, you can see. They do kind of look alike, I think. Um, but I'll put that in the video version of this episode and I'll, I'll share it in the socials this week. Oh, and then Gil also ID'd another man named Philip Flippy Cher as the getaway driver. But that wasn't until 1931, four years after the shooting. So this guy, Gil, he's all over the place. You know, I think they probably just went, we can't have a trial when this guy doesn't know. You know, he keeps changing his mind, keeps changing his answers. So I didn't bother to investigate the other two men, this Flippy and uh, Jack Gold, because I don't know if they were convicted of the shooting. If I did do all that, this episode would be seven hours long. So, um, but I will note that Flippy's attorney was Archie M. Carey, that same lawyer. So this doesn't mean that Harry Jaffa was a good kid. He went on to be involved in a ton of other things, including bootlegging. And I'm pretty sure he had to have known Kid Can. Uh, he had to have because... If he was involved in bootlegging in Minnesota, Minneapolis, then yeah, he probably he had worked to for him or... Or, yeah, at his own group. He either were together or they were rivals, is my guess. Um, so he's also going on my list of people to investigate further. Uh, one interesting thing that um, popped out of this is, and this uh, Howard Guilford, Jane Eyre, and the um, Saturday Press, is that since the police chief, whose name was Frank Burnskill, he didn't want to investigate the shooting, claiming that it was outside the city limits, the feeling was that the paper might be onto something, uh, especially since the chief went around to the newspaper stands in town and told the boys not to sell any issues of the Saturday press because it was inciting to riot. Hmm. Gill said the chief in banning his paper from newsstands definitely aligns himself with gangland and violates the law he's sworn to uphold. Then a few weeks later, the paper took on Floyd B. Olson. Old Floyd. Oh, you're not supposed to do that. <laughs> um, he was the Hennepin County attorney at the time. He, they took him to task for, quote, fall, failing to crack down on the criminal underworld and said to him, go ahead and run for governor again, Floyd, and you'll find that what you took to be a chip on my shoulder is really a tomahawk. <laughs> These guys are very flamboyant. Poetic. Yes. <laughs> Olson then looked for a legal way to suppress the paper. He found it in the fact that the paper was often written in very confrontational and, let's be plain, racist and anti-Semitic way. In one edition, Jane Eyre wrote, and this is really hard for me to read. It's awful. Um, He wrote, quote, practically every vendor of vile hooch, every snake-faced gangster and embryonic yegg in the Twin Cities is a Jew. Jew thugs who have pulled practically every robbery in this city, unquote. Yeah. He said a lot of really shitty things. So I I looked up what a yeg was. <laughs> a yeg is a burglar or a safe cracker. Oh. Another word. We have lots of words today. <laughs> so in November, Olson filed a restraining suit against the Saturday Press, citing a public nuisance law or a gag law that was passed by the legislature in 1925. The 1925 law permitted the state to shutter a, quote, malicious, scandalous, and defamatory newspaper, magazine, or other periodical. 
It was the first law to provide for actual suppression of the public press since the passage of the Alien and Sedition Acts in 1798. The New York Times had written that the Minnesota statute was a vicious law, and the Literary Digest declared that, quote, freedom from the press in Minnesota is reduced to about the freedom of a straitjacket. So in 1931, there was a Supreme Court case between Jay Neer and the state. Guilford had withdrawn from the case. This time on June 1st, 1931, in a five to four decision, the court struck down the Minnesota public nuisance law as unconstitutional and ruled in favor of Neer. It's believed that part of why this law was repealed is that newly elected Governor Floyd Olson during his inaugural address, argued for its repeal, even though he just used it. (laughs) He said, quote, I believe that the possibilities for abuse make it an unwise law. The Minnesota nuisance law, the court ruled, was unconstitutional because imposing a previous restraint on what publishers can print is, quote, the essence of censorship. And... I just want to point out that we have a very similar problem (laughs) facing us today with all this fake news. I mean, yeah, it's wrong to censor, but do we really need people spouting off hateful, racist, and untrue bullshit? I mean... No, we don't need that. No, but, you know, you... It's out of control, though. Yeah. Can't say they can't say it because it's then it's censorship. So... Anyway, Neer kept working at the Saturday Press, but changed the tone of the paper to be a little more subdued. Guilford, on the other hand, doubled down, as people like that tend to do. He cut ties with Neer due to financial disagreements and went on to publish The Pink Sheet, another scandal paper which attacked politicians and city officials repeatedly. In one 1933 article, after confiscating at least 25,000 copies of the paper, Superintendent of Police Meehan said, playing up of sensational criminal cases and sexual matters in heavy black face typed before the children of Minneapolis must stop. I'm going to keep such papers off the streets from now on. I'll guarantee there'll be no more of them. Hmm. And told Guilford that he could go pick up his papers from the basement of City Hall. (laughs) Gil responded by suing Meehan, and he won. Then he was countersued by Meehan, and it goes back and forth, and I quit looking into it, because like I said, we don't want to be here all flipping day. So then he took on, Gil, took on Floyd Olson again. The last time he did that was on a radio talk show in 1934. And just 10 days later, he was murdered. Murdered. At 5.30 p.m. on September 6, 1934, Gil was driving home from work. Uh, A car pulled up next to him and shot him in the head. He was only a few blocks from home. (laughs) Yeah, this time they didn't miss. Nope. (laughs) Well, they didn't miss last time either, but they got him where he could recover. So the Star newspaper says, on the seat beside him was a bag of cakes and cookies that he was taking home for dinner. Back of the seat was a collection of fishing tackle. On the dashboard, his radio was going, broadcasting the last few innings innings of the Minneapolis-Milwaukee baseball game. And then three blocks down the street, in apartment 310 at 601 Ridgewood Avenue, Guilford's sister-in-law, Stella Zaida, was preparing dinner when police arrived to inform her of Guilford's death. Mrs. Guilford had left a week ago to visit relatives in Detroit. Now, this is a different sister. The other one was Esther. This is Stella. Okay. 
Who thinks he was stooping his wife's sisters? Ooh, stooping. Just me? (laughs) I kind of think he might have. Who knows? Maybe they were 80. I don't know. I couldn't find anything. I Googled them both. I couldn't find anything on either of them. Uh, He was 48 years old, uh, but the only picture we have of him is from 1918. So he looks about 16 years old. Um, He was. I mean, he was. I think he was 18 at the time. I think he was born in 1900. I'm not positive. Anyway. Oh, no. He had to have been older than that if he was 48 years old in 1934. I can't do that math, but he was not 18. His murder remains unsolved. But in one of the books I'm reading called Stopping the Presses by Marta Woodhouse, it says that Guilford's wife received a letter from a friend who said, quote, Floyd B. Olson was really the murderer, though he did not do the real act. Huh. Oh, Floyd. Oh, Floyd. So I have another story, eerily similar, that I want to share, but I think we should take a break. Go, we'll go refill our beverages. Where's mine? So, and now a word from our sponsors. Yeah. <laughs> Wouldn't that be great if we had sponsors? <laughs> Maybe someday. This is where I'll put in the, the break anyway. Uh, so go refill your beverage, go pee, whatever, and come back for the story of Walter Liggett. So, welcome back from break. We have fresh beverages. Round two. Round two. Of the Ward 8 cocktail. Yep. Delicious. With the very expensive cherry. It would be nice to get a sponsorship from the Luxardo cherry people. (laughs) Free cherries. Because they're expensive. I do have a jar of cherries that my dad gave me that I've never opened. Oh. Um, Are they boozy that I'll bring cherries? over next time. They're booze. I, I, I don't know if, yeah, I mean, they're for drinks. Yeah. Um, but I just don't make fancy drinks at home by myself. So I'll bring them over here for oh. next time. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we'll make fancy drinks for you. <laughs> yeah, there's a couple other um, brands of cherry, and I can't remember the name of them. This but... one comes in a really pretty white and blue. It looks like Delft China, if you know oh. what that is. Yep. <laughs> well, I think I do. Um, wow. All right. Those might be even fancier than the ones we have. Okay. Okay. Well, well, <laughs> next time. <laughs> um, okay. So, blah, 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 blah. so all of this Guilford stuff is to set the stage for the story of a man who would indirectly end up causing Isidore Blumenfeld, aka Kid Can, to start answering for his misdeeds. We had mentioned Walter Liggett in the last episode when my husband read a poem about prohibition that was apparently written by Liggett. It was kind of cute. Um, I'll play it again. And then we're going to dive in. 10,000 Jews were making booze without the state's permission to fill the needs of a million Swedes who voted for prohibition. Walter Liggett. On October 24th, 1935, Newspaper editor Walter Liggett was called to the Radisson Hotel that evening by a woman named Annette Fawcett. She is the former wife of W.H. Fawcett. He's a publisher. I will get to him in a bit. And gossip has it that she was also a former mistress of Governor Olson. Um, That was from a book 
called Stopping the Presses, which I had referred to earlier. Uh, the author is Marta Woodhouse. Marta's maiden name is Liggett. She is Walter Liggett's daughter. She was 10 years old at this time in 1935. And she's written a book and it's really, it's really good. It's got a lot of Minnesota history. It's really cool. Highly, I recommend reading it. And I'm still only like halfway through. Uh, but I thought I was done with this episode stuff, script and stuff earlier today. And then I just was like, oh, I'll just relax a little bit and read her book. And then I got a bunch more stuff to throw in here. So, yeah, it never ends. Um, anyway, so Walter Liggett was called to the Radisson Hotel uh, to Aunt Annette Fawcett's room, apartment. When he got there, Kid Can showed up with another friend or two. It seems like it started out friendly enough. They had a few drinks. And then, according to Liggett, he was asked to lay off regarding the stories he was writing and publishing in his newspaper, The Midwest American. The Midwest American was another one of those, what they would call muckrake. Uh, it was exposing politicians and city officials and corruptness and stuff. So these uh, were considered to be political attacks and exposures of alleged gambling and liquor rackets. I could not find any articles from the Midwest American online, so I've not seen any of the articles. Uh, Sid Hartman, in his book, called it a scandal sheet printed on pink paper. Uh, Liggett refused to back off, saying his aim was to drive gambling and vice out of Minneapolis. Sound familiar? Yes. <laughs> At this time, Walter Liggett was awaiting trial. It was for a statutory charge involving a 17-year-old woman from Austin, Minnesota, he said he was framed by Governor Floyd B. Olson because of his criticisms of the governor. The trial was supposed to be November 4th. He publicly blamed Floyd B. Olson for the murder of Howard Guilford. And there is so much more to this trial. Uh, but again, I'm going to have to rein myself in and we'll have to go over it in a, a deep dive episode later. It's on the list. <laughs> so this story... There are some conflicting reports, let's say. So this is Walter's story. And I got this from interviews that are in the newspaper with Walter, and then also from Marta, his daughter's book. So Annette Fawcett called him and asked him to come to the hotel because she had information for him. She didn't have any info, but she did suggest to him that he get an attorney. Walter said it would cost $1,500 and he didn't have the money. She said she could get a lawyer for him for nothing, but it was from a firm that Walter did not trust. Ah. And I'm wondering if that was Mr. Good old Carrie. Uh, I don't know who it was, but the phone rang and it was Kid Can. Walter heard her say, the gentleman is here now. She asked Walter if he wanted to talk to Izzy and Walter replied that he had nothing to say to Can then or any time. Two men showed up and Walter chatted with them. They had some drinks. Then Kid Can showed up. They chatted about how Izzy really wanted Walter to stop attacking him in the Midwest American and said if he would lay off, Walter would be taken care of. Walter laughed him off. That's a bad move. Uh, and Izzy hit him. Walter got up to leave. Izzy apologized profusely and offered him a ride home. Now, Izzy's story 
says he resented Walter's attacks in the paper because while he used to be engaged in rackets, he was now in the legitimate liquor business. He said that Walter asked him for $1,500 to help finance his upcoming trial, and he denies that he offered Walter any money. So the rest of the story I have clued together from newspapers and uh, Marta's book. So they stopped at a cafe on the way home for a drink. I believe it was at the Tia Juana Cafe. That's two words. That's why I said it weird. <laughs> I was like, does she um, not know how to say Tijuana? <laughs> I know how to say Tijuana. Yeah, it's a Tia Juana Cafe at 1110 Hennepin. And I think I looked up that and there's like a freeway there now. So it's not, it's like in the in that weird spot where Hennepin and, and Lindale kind of, Come right. together and is by the by the where um, I live, yeah, kinda okay yeah, by the walker, right? More by the walker, okay. mm-hmm. that like Vineland Place and all that weird stuff down there. All right, so some of Izzy's friends showed up to this bar cafe. It was a cafe, but it was a bar. Um, one of them was Abe Brownie Bronstein, who had also been attacked in Walter's paper. They tried to bribe him once again, and he refused. And that's when the beating started. He fought his way out of the cafe, uh, only to be knocked down on the sidewalk and further beaten by seven men. He escaped to a cab and went home. The newspapers say he went to the hospital, but Liggett's daughter says he came straight home. She was, oh, she woke up when he came home. His wife, Edith, called for an ambulance three times, but was told that the only available one was out on another call, <laughs> which doesn't that mean it's not available? <laughs> <laughs> one arrived almost two hours later and took him to the Swedish hospital, which that's where I was born. Really? Uh-huh. I don't even know where it is. It's probably part of, uh, um, I have a feeling it's part of, maybe it's part of HCMC, but I I don't know. I always pictured it out at more like Fairview Southdale area. I don't know. We can look into that. You can ask your mother. Yeah, I could ask my mother. (laughs) She probably would remember. The papers reported it as though Walter was stinking drunk at the cafe and became annoying to the customers, milling about and was offering, this is a quote, offering to display his pugilistic prowess. (laughs) That's from the New York Times. His pugilistic prowess. That could be another title. He fought with Abe Bronstein and broke his thumb. And then Abe hit him back. But if that story is true, then... I don't know how Walter ended up so beaten. He was, he had black eyes, he broke a couple of ribs, and his ear was almost torn off. Oh, no. Yeah. So Walter also said that he thought the cafe was at about 25th and Nicollet, but of course, you know, his bell had been rung and he was probably trashed. So who knows? The police came to the hospital and interviewed Walter, saying they would return with a complaint for him to sign, and they never returned. Walter's wife, Edith, suspected that when they returned to the police headquarters, they were told not to follow up. She pleaded with them to let him sign a complaint, but they refused, saying that Walter caused the problem himself because he was drunk and attacked Kid Can. On October 27th, Kid Can and Annette Fawcett were, quote, unquote, held blameless. An interesting side note, one of Walter's articles in his paper was called Minneapolis and Vice in Volstead Land. And that is where we got the name yes. of the podcast. 
Uh, it was just a few weeks after that Walter had his trial for the statutory case, but I'm glossing over that right now. But it's good. Uh, <laughs> we'll do it another time. Uh, but I will tell you that he was found not guilty. And uh, this is a quote from Walter, of Walter, by Walter, by Walter, <laughs> from Marta Woodhouse, Marta Liggett Woodhouse's book. Well, I suppose I will have to stay here on the firing line until after the next election, at least. I've determined to drive Olson and his gang out of public life if it's the last thing I do. It'll be a tough job, but I've already weakened his popularity, and in another year I think I can finish him off. That is, if he doesn't have me shot in the meantime as he did poor Howard Guilford. There's always that danger. Walter Liggett. Knowing what we know about old Howie, uh, I bet you can guess what happens next. Yep. On December 9th, 1935, at about 5.30 p.m., Walter Liggett is gunned down outside his home while unpacking groceries from his car. His wife and daughter were in the car with him. Several, uh, yeah, several neighbors witnessed the assassination and all identified Kid Can as the shooter. Liggett's widow would always believe that Minnesota Governor Floyd Olson was deeply implicated in the murder. And there is a lot more to say about the murder, but again, going to chill on it for now. We're going to cover the more details of the murder and the trial in the next episode. I think we've, we've done enough for today. And, you know, any more of these and... <laughs> Cheers. So I did want to circle back for a second on Annette Fawcett's husband, W.H. Fawcett. Wilford Hamilton Fawcett is also known as Captain Billy. He was an American, American magazine publisher. He published a magazine called Captain Billy's Whizbang, which was founded in 1919 and was headquartered in Robbinsdale, Minnesota, until 1940 when he moved it to Greenwich, Connecticut. Fawcett Comics, which began operating in 1939, led to the introduction of Captain Marvel. Now, this isn't the Captain Marvel that you may be thinking of. This is Shazam, which ended up being a DC Comics uh, character. I'll post a photo in the socials and in the video. Um, In 1953... The company abandoned its roster of superhero comic characters in the wake of declining sales and a lawsuit for infringement by the Captain Marvel character on the copyright of the action comics character Superman. And it ended its publication of comic books. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Volstead Land. Tune in next time when Isidore Blumenfeld, a.k.a. Kid Can, goes to trial for the murder of Walter Liggett. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss the next episode. And visit us on our social media platforms for extra content, as well as Patreon. Uh, If you're a fan, please consider supporting us by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Even if you don't listen on Apple, for reasons unknown to me, it really does help us out. Don't forget to follow us on Patreon. You can follow for free, as I showed earlier, or subscribe with a small fee to get even more content, including early releases. Good night. Good night. Good night.
Volstedland is produced by me, Amy, at Whimsical Productions and is part of the Collected Sounds Network. Thanks for listening. Okie doke.